you'll open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 15, Revelation chapter 15, we'll cover 15 and 16 today. In the 1990s, as our culture looked to the ending of the millennium, there were a lot of movies and books and talk about the end times. Arnold Schwarzenegger was the Terminator. Terminator 2 came out called Judgment Day. There were many movies about big comets hitting the earth, or possibly hitting the earth, and they're trying to move a big comet from hitting the earth. One of the most notable movies was called Armageddon, with the classic Aerosmith song, I don't want to close my eyes. I don't want to fall asleep because I miss you, baby, and I... Wow, thank you, Stephanie. (laughs) Stephanie is going to be playing that later today. And uh, that'll be fun. Which is the oddest lyrics for a, a movie about, you know, the end times and the comet hitting the earth. Like, why does it matter if you close your eyes if you're going to die like 30 seconds later? So anyway, that was a weird one. And then Left Behind series had the Christian spin on the end times. And then Y2K happened and the world didn't end. And so things shifted The genres and the ways end times movie shows and books were written all of a sudden became zombie apocalypse to even today. So like all of a sudden, you know, meteors aren't hitting us, but now zombie diseases and things like that are the rage for the last 20 years. Our culture has been and will continue to be fantasized and fascinated by the in times. What's going to happen? Even when COVID hit, remember March of 2020, and there were these moments, those early days of, of the COVID, the coronavirus coming, and we're like, are we all going to die of this disease? Like, that was kind of unsettling. We're like, what is going to happen? Today, as we cover Revelation chapters 15 and 16, we're going to get a, our final judgment cycle. Yes, we will see more camera angles of the final battle and judgments in upcoming chapters, but we are seeing the final judgment cycle. You might ask, what are the judgment cycles if you haven't been here? Well, we saw seven seals, we saw seven trumpets, and today we'll see the seven bowls. Those seven seals focus predominantly on how believers would walk through the difficulties of the world to the culmination of God's judgment And the seals helped refine believers and show the punishment of the unbelievers. Then we looked at the seven trumpets, a different camera angle of the same events. These focus on creation being undone, ratcheting up the intensity of everything with the judgment of unbelievers. And it was heartbreaking to see the torment of the demonic beings coming against the unbelievers and yet unbelievers turning and worshiping those very demonic beings their hearts growing harder like Pharaoh did. And today we'll see the seven bowls of plagues. And when you hear the word plague in the New Testament, you want to go to the Old Testament connection of plagues, which the predominant story in the Old Testament is the Exodus story, the judgment of Egypt. And these plagues are not just future. These plagues are like the seals and the bowls. Many of them are in the church age between the first and second coming of Christ like the seals and bowls, but they each end, both the seal or all the seals, the trumpets and the bowls all end with the final judgment, though we know there aren't three final judgments. 
But before we hear much about the judgment cycle of the bowls, we get another picture. We get a picture of victory, victory of the saints and those praising God. And it's interesting how many windows you have into that as you're seeing these awful judgments, and then you get a little window of victory, of joy, of those who see the sweet victory in Jesus. God wants his people to be aware of the judgment, but he also wants his people to be aware of the victory to come. So let's look at Revelation chapter 15, starting at verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who conquered the beast and its image and a number of its names standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear? O Lord, and glorify your name. For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. May God bless the preaching and teaching and reading of his word. Today, what we'll find, kind of to summarize the two chapters, is this God is praised and cursed as the final judgment cycle is revealed. Saints will be praising God. You'll see that in this text we just read. Pagans will be cursing God. We'll see a lot of cursing God as we hit this text. And God gives his just judgment cycle. And the clarity that this punishment is just is one of the themes we'll see in chapters 15 and 16. So first we're going to look at the praise of God's persevering people. Revelation 15 begins with the introduction of the seven plagues, which um, are, are the content of the seven bowls. And this is the last I mentioned. And, and what will actually end up at the, toward the end of the chapter of 16, it will say, it is done. We'll get to those words, it is done by the end of the sermon today. But the text isn't focused on the judgments yet. We're focused focusing our gaze on God's saints. Notice there's a sea there. Normally, if you look at the Old Testament, seas represent chaos. This sea is still. It is like glass. When we see seas of glass, that's speaking of God's uh, sovereign control of that. We'll see judgment also of this sea in other parts of this, of judging the beast. So that's probably where the fire imagery comes from. But notice that who's beside this sea of glass? God's people are. Look how they're described in verse 2. Those who had conquered the beast and its image in the number of its name. These are a war-torn people. These are not saints who have had an easy, comfortable life. These are saints who have persevered and conquered the beast. They've walked through the persecution of the first beast. They've walked through the seduction and deception of the second beast. They've stood against the dragon. They've stood against Satan's tactics. And what are Satan ta Satan's tactics? We've seen this. Satan's tactics are forced conversion. If you don't worship the beast, you'll die. Tactics of economic deprivation. If you worship Jesus, you'll not be allowed in the trade guilds. 
So you'll suffer economically. That's what was happening in the first century. And tactics of seduction. Just live like everybody else and you'll be fine. Just go along with the cultural tides and you'll be fine. Follow the beast, worship the beast, see the beast as wise. And these saints have persevered through all of this. And these saints are holding the harps in their hands. And when I think about the saints by the water here after being war-torn and ravaged and just kind of like singing, I just think about David. Imagine David right after he's killed the lion, which we know he did that, or killed a bear, and we know he did that. Like Just like pulling out the little lyre, the, the harp or whatever. This is guitar. He's got his guitar. Just kind of relaxing. It's been a hard day. He just killed a wild beast that could have drilled him, obviously. And he's just playing. These people have this calming moment of playing to the Lord, this war-torn people, and they're singing the song of Moses. And John, the author, wants us to picture something here. In Exodus chapter 15, right after the Israelites cross the Red Sea, they sing. What do they sing? The song of Moses. They've been freed from slavery, and they're celebrating God's victory. Revelation 15 has this new Exodus celebration. God's people have walked through the pain of persecution and opposition of the dragon that we saw in chapter 12, that we saw in chapter 13. They have endured when everything and everyone around them wanted to cave in. And they're singing, just as the Israelites stood beside the sea that drowned Pharaoh, this army of people stand by this glassy sea where the beast will be judged. And they sing this song, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Now, as I looked up uh, verses one, uh, 3 and 4, I expected them to be quoting Exodus 15. As you study God's Word, at times you just kind of, you're like, oh, that's probably what's going to be happening. And so I looked at Exodus 15, and it's actually not the words here. So he's not quoting from that time in the Exodus. There's some, some verbiage from Jeremiah as well as some of the Psalms, but Revelation 15, 3 and 4 is actually a new song. It's literally a new song. It's a song of Moses, the servant, but not just a song of Moses. It's a song of Moses, the servant of God, get this, and the song of the Lamb. So Moses and Jesus are writing songs together now. I think about Moses showing up at the Mount of Transfiguration, talking with Jesus, literally talking about Jesus's exodus, his departure. Moses shows up, and now they're writing a song together, a victory song. And this song of Moses and Jesus the Lamb is on the lips of God's people. It's a victory song on the lips of God's people. God's deeds are great and amazing. God is worthy of all glory and worship. And friends, there's some application for us here. We are to be a singing people. 
God's people are to be a singing people. If you are a believer and you're not a singing person, you do not understand the victory of Jesus. And I don't care how bad your voice is. Like some of us is pretty bad. Like just, let's just admit that. That's why you're not up here, right? So we're not saying everybody needs a microphone, but everybody is a singing person that is a believer in Jesus Christ. Our world gets this. Like, you watch, if you watch college football yesterday, there's crowds that start singing a victory. I'm so tempted to talk about a certain game last night, but I'm not going to, Sean Summers. Um, and, and so, like, there's just singing that happens in the victory. Our world does that all the time. We sing in celebration. What, it's... Like, how weird would it be? I've heard this illustration from somebody else. So I'm stealing it. If, if it's anybody's birthday today? No? Okay. Is it? Annika's birthday is almost. So if I said, Annika, hey, guys, we are going to say, not sing, happy birthday to her. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Annika. Happy birthday to you. That just doesn't, she's like, that didn't mean anything. That was actually pretty pathetic, right? Because God has created us to be a singing people. We sing to express. We sing to rejoice. We sing to have victory. That's what's going on here. As the saints, the war-torn saints are by the sea, they're singing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. We are to be a singing people. Colossians 3.16 says this, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. How are you to be taught rich, richly? Singing psalms and spiritual songs. How do you admonish one another? Some of it's through singing. How do you learn wisdom? Some of it's through the words and singing. There's probably not very many Sundays that you go home and in the afternoon, you're just like recounting my sermon words in your head. And you're like, oh, that was so good. Mike, that, that word, that phrase, oh man, that was great. But how many times do you have a song in your head and heart and God uses his word that we sing? That's why we like meaty songs. Not just singing frivolous words that you could sing to your boyfriend. Like we sing God's word. Our text continues as the camera angle shifts to the last judgment cycle of the bowls. Look at verse 5 of chapter 15. And after this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues clothed in pure bright linen, with golden sashes around their chest. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from the, his power. And no one can enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Chapter 16. And I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore 
the mark of the beast and worshiped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like the blood of the corpse and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water and they became blood. And I heard an angel in charge of the water say, just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. We're going to stop there. We'll get the rest of the passage in a minute. The final judgment cycle is the bowls of plagues. Our text shows these angels coming receiving the bowls. It appears the plagues are in the bowls that are being poured out. And they are full of the wrath of God, Revelation 15, 7 says. And now hopefully by now we've discussed enough in the sermon series to train our instincts of how we should understand this text. First off, remember the painter's palette. John paints with the palette of the Old Testament. He paints with the palette of the Old Testament. We've got to have that in mind when we look at this. He also, like a good artist, when we hear him talk about plagues and he paints with the palette of the Old Testament, I said this earlier, but maybe you weren't listening, the plagues should make us think of what? The Exodus, okay? So that's the main part of plagues in the Old Testament. But what do the plagues do? What do the plagues do? I'm just going to ask someone to call it out if you want to. What do the plagues do to the king of Egypt? They harden his heart. Thank you for whoever said that. They harden his heart. So if we're seeing painting with the palette, exodus, plagues, we should also expect hardening. And that's exactly what we see as we enter this text. What we find in this text is that the enemies of God grow harder with each plague. At the fourth bowl, it says the people curse the name of God and refuse to repent. In the fifth bowl, it says they cursed the God of heaven and did not repent of their deeds. We'll get to the seventh bowl, and it says that they cursed God. Why do they curse God? Because his just judgment. The first bowl tells us that these people actually worshipped the beast. They bowed in loyalty to the satanic influences. The third bowl tells us that the judgments come on them because they, quote, shed the blood of the saints and prophets, unquote. So we aren't looking around at some innocent victims here of God's wrath. No, these people oppose God, curse God, hate their creator, worship the demons, basking in immorality, and drunk on the blood and murder of the saints. We must remember these judgment cycles. These judgment cycles are different camera angles of similar events. What's interesting is if you line up the seven trumpets of chapters 8 through 11 and the seven bowls of chapter 16, you see a lot of parallel. Can you put that up there, John? The the trumpet number one and bowl number one are on earth and land. Trumpet number two and bowl number two are on the sea. Trumpet number three and bowl number three are on rivers and springs and fresh water. Trumpet four and bowl four on the sun. Trumpet five and bowl five bring agony and torment to mankind. Trumpet six and bowl six are at the Euphrates and trumpet seven And bowl seven are lightning, rumblings, thunder, earthquake, and severe hailstorm. 
So the trumpets and the bowls have to have some parallel of understanding because they go together. I think we're supposed to get that in reading this. The trumpets focus more on the judgment on unbelievers, the demonic attack, and specifically tied to the undoing of creation. The bowls are shorter. They're more specific accounts of unbelievers, and they focus on the unbeliever's opposition. They really focus on what we said happened to Pharaoh, hardening. That's what they are focused on. The trumpets spoke of the attack of Satan on unbelievers. The bowls speak of the unbeliever's hatred toward God. Same scene, different camera angles, same times in history, but different also. Let me kind of say it this way. I'm just trying to grasp some illustration. I was trying to think through this this week. If you think about World War II, if you're a World War II buff, it feels like the bowls are like looking at World War II, but you're taking the very worst battles. Like you're looking at the very worst days of World War II, the very worst moments, the most intense moments, because every day wasn't as intense as the other days. It feels like the bowls are getting to the most intense times of this war. But there is a difference in the trumpets and the bowls. The first several trumpets speak of the partial judgment. The repeated phrase is a third, a third, a third, a third of everything is destroyed, which gives this indication that the judgment is not full yet and that there is time to repent. There's time for unbelievers to repent. But as you get to the bowls, people are not repenting. Like nobody is repenting. They are hardened. So while there's overlap in the trumpets and bowls, it seems like the bowls push toward the the culmination of the hardening, hardening, the explicit final judgments that come at the end of chapter, I mean, of trumpet, sorry, bowl number seven. Now there's some mystery here, obviously. It can be confusing of how all this works out because we don't fully know, but it kind of feels this way to me as I was trying to grasp it. It feels like trumpet one ends with the hardening of bowl one. Trumpet two ends with a hardening of bowl two. I don't think that fully fits, just to let you know, but just trying to figure out how this intensity goes, but there's like parallels and how it all goes with different camera angles and how the time period works. Before we look at each bowl, though, we have to note something. We have seen bowls before. We've seen bowls before in Revelation. We see the bowl of judgment here filled with God's wrath, but there were other bowls. And what were they filled with? Incense that were the prayers of God's people. So we see the bowls of judgment here, but we've seen the bowls that are the prayers of God's people. And what are those prayers? Chapter 6, verse 10. How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth, O sovereign Lord? How long, O Lord? Don't miss the link of the judgment of these bowls in chapter 16. Then they're answering the prayers that are prayed in chapter 6. How long before you will judge and avenge our blood, God? He says, it's time. But friends, don't miss the application here. There's a long time between the prayers of chapter 6 and the answer of chapter 16. We've had 2,000 years of living in the last days. Commentator Greg Beal encourages us with this. Often, many years pass between the offering of a prayer and its answer. How important it is as we pray to ask God for 
Whose perspective? His perspective. Not to mention his patience. In order that we keep on praying and never get discouraged, at all times remembering Jesus' instruction that we ought to pray and not lose heart. We ought to pray and not lose heart. We ought to pray and not lose heart. Friends, are there areas where you are losing heart? Are there areas where you used to pray? That area of your life, that prayer for your child, that prayer for work, that prayer for a spouse. You used to pray, but you stopped. Would God be stirring you to rekindle some past prayers of asking, seeking, and knocking? Let's look at what happens with each bowl. We've noted that the seven seals and seven trumpets in the church age, we see that some of this stuff in the bowls is in the church age as well. We also have got to remember that in apocalyptic literature, the interpretive assumption is figurative, not literal. John's painting with the palette of the Old Testament, speaks of the Exodus plague, that hardens. Dennis Johnson says this, all interpreters recognize that the outpouring on each bowl is not a physical action, but a symbol of world-devastating judgment that is purposed by God's sovereign will and executed by his almighty power. So let's look at these bowls. Bowl number one is, is judgment on earth and unbelievers. It's focused on where people live and work. Greg Beale says that it is the suffering that God causes those who follow the world systems, the beast. It's spiritual and psychological torment, like physical sores would be physical torment. Bowl number two is devastation on the, excuse me, on the sea. Fish and food are affected. This may be greater economic punishment. We'll see merchants and shipmasters crying out as Babylon is destroyed as we study chapter 18 in a few weeks. There is economic benefit in worshiping the beast. And so God pours out economic hardship. Bowl number three, are rivers turn to blood and seems to relate back to possibly the wrath of the rivers of blood in chapter 14. This bowl is a bit different because an angel speaks toward the end of it. He says in verse five, second part of verse five, just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. Now, the emphasis John wants us to understand is this punishment is just. This punishment is equitable. It is what they deserve. God is present in his punishment too. Remember, oftentimes we see God who was and is and is to come. This just says was and is. There's no is to come here. He's present here with his people. He's present to bless, but he's also present to punish those who have killed his people. They get what they deserve. Or as Galatians 6, 7 says, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. Friends, this passage speaks to this. Verse 7 then kind of throws us back to the prayers of the bowls. Verse 7 speaks of the altar. Look what it says. I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just 
are your judgments. Most commentators think this throws back to Revelation chapter 6 where those under the altar were praying, how long, O Lord? We looked at that passage a second ago. Now those saints are saying, yes, yes, Lord, yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. How long? Yes, it's happening. God's answering the prayers of the saints. God is just. Sin will be punished. And friends, sin being punished is both good news and bad news. If you're living in rebellion against God, it is bad news. We are those who will have the plagues poured out against us. One commentator says that he really, that we really like justice, especially when it's for other people. We, we, we think that God should make us the exception. We want other people punished for their evil, but we don't actually want to be punished for ours. Friends, God makes no exceptions. God does not erase our sins. God does not overlook our sins. God is completely holy and just and will pour out wrath on all sin. All sin. Every bit of sin. But here's the good news. Jesus, the Lamb who conquered, came into this world to bring His kingdom by paying for the wrath that you and I deserve on the cross for those who believe in him. All who are loyal to this king, all who confess allegiance to this king, Jesus Christ, have that wrath poured on the lamb, fully drunk by the lamb, fully purchased by the lamb. Not a race, paid for fully. The bowl of wrath that you deserve, the bowl of wrath that I deserve, if we trust Jesus as a Savior, was taken fully by Him. Friends, that's the good news for sinners. It's either taken by Jesus or it will be poured out on you. We encourage you to turn from your sin and trust Jesus. And we'd love to talk to you if you have questions about that. <coughs> Let's continue to bowl number four, verse eight. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch the people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God, <coughs> who had power over these plagues. They did not repent or give him glory. Look at verse 10. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of the heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. See some similarities of bowls number four and five. God pours out his wrath. Common grace is pulled back with the darkness. They curse God. They did not repent or give him glory. The hardening like Pharaoh is happening as the plagues are poured out. Then darkness comes with bowl number five. Darkness is not just darkness like physical, but separation. The domain of darkness is where these people are living. Darkness is where the evil and lies flourish. Darkness is where they curse God and do not repent. Darkness. And note, this bowl number five is poured out on the throne of the beast. One scholar says, God is hitting Satan's oval office. He is going after Satan targeting Satan. There's intensity here. And it is ratcheting up as we go to bowl number six and seven of the final judgment. Point number three, the final war and final judgment. It is done. Bowl number six, let's look at verse 
12. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates. Its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, now the mouth of the beast, now the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for the battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go out, go about naked and be seen exposed. Verse 16. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. So much like the Red Sea and the Jordan River, the water is dried up. Much like Cyrus coming from the east with Persia coming to attack Babylon, these kings of the east come to attack God's people. And there's the dragon, the beast, and the prophet coming in opposition. These unclean spirits come from them. These are demonic attack coming from them. Like frogs think plagues again of Exodus. Frogs might seem harmless, but they cause chaos if they're in your food and your bed and everywhere else. There's chaos happening. These frog demons come and they, they, they gather the kings together to war against God's people. Verse 14, it says, they assemble them to battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Verse 16, they assemble them at the place that is in Hebrew called Armageddon. This is the war predicted in Zephaniah chapter 3, Zechariah chapters 12 and 14, Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. This is Satan wanting to destroy Christ's church. We've seen this war in chapter 11 with the two prophets that were killed. We will see this same battle in chapter 17, 19, and 20. Armageddon simply means Mount of Megiddo. Megiddo is a place where different battles took place, and, and Armageddon became a, a proverb or proverbial in Judaism for a place where righteous Israel is attacked by evil nations. Much like we would say, Pearl Harbor. Some of us, when I say Pearl Harbor, think about a location in Hawaii. Those of us who've never been there probably think about what happened on December 7th, 1941. Armageddon is a proverb. It's a, not an Aerosmith song. It is a proverb of what happened uh, when evil nations attack Israel. But notice verse 15 Verse 15 is so important. There's a parenthetical here. Jesus talks. He says, Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be exposed. Who is Jesus talking to? Who's Jesus talking to? He's speaking to the saints. He's speaking to battle-wearied saints who need encouragement, who are suffering under persecution, who have the kings opposing them, who are seeing the battle lines drawn like a good commander, like a good king, giving orders to his army. Be ready. Persevere. Friends, let us take heart here. Let us spiritually stay awake like our commander tells us to. Let us not be lulled to sleep by this world that says life doesn't matter. Just live for yourself. 
Just live for your comfort. Just believe in yourself a little bit more and you can do whatever you want with your life. Oh man, that makes me want to cuss. Like it's, that is wrong. That is not true. If you're a 5'1 white girl, you're not going to be an NBA basketball player. Like you can't do whatever you want. You can't. The Bible says you need to do what God wants. You need to do what God calls you to do. Wake up to that. Because the demons are lulling us to sleep with lies. Don't be lulled to sleep by screens. Don't be lulled to sleep by food. Don't be lulled to sleep by entertainment. Don't be lulled to sleep by education. Don't be lulled to sleep by hobbies. Some of those are good things. Don't be lulled to sleep by work. Don't be lulled to sleep. Wake up, be alert, live fully for Christ. You, you are needed in the battle, friends. You are needed in the battle because we will only fight for a little while. Only fight for a lifetime. The Bible says it's a mist. It's here today, gone tomorrow. It's a vapor. Only fight for this little 70 to 80 years that you have on this earth. And then we reach eternal rest. Joyful, longing, our home going. Suffering will not last forever. This battle will not rage forever. There's a day when it will be done. Look at verse 17. And the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumbles, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was the earthquake. And the great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away and no mountain, mountains were to be found and great hailstones about a hundred pounds each fell from heaven on people and they cursed God for the plagues of the hail because the plague was so severe. The seventh bowl is poured out. This is a significant moment. The loud voice from the throne. This is God the Father's voice cries, it is done. Now, if you hear that phrase, it is done, I'm hoping it, it causes you to think about another cry. This should remind us of something. It should remind us of the words of Jesus from the cross. He had paid for the wrath of believers. He had completed God's righteous requirement of the law. He had completed the mission. In John 19, 30, Jesus says, it is finished. Jesus bows his head, gives up his spirit. Luke tells us that there's darkness that covers the land. The curtain in the temple is torn in two. Access to the Holy of Holies is now available. Matthew tells us the earth shook and rocks split. Now there's another it is finished cry. The wrath was fully taken by Jesus at the first it is finished, the wrath for believers, but now the wrath is given for all who've rebelled, fully poured out on unbelievers. Justice has been served. They have gotten what they deserved. It is done. And notice, when God speaks, the it is done, the earth responds. 
When Jesus said it is finished, the earth responded, his creation. He speaks lightning, thunder, great earthquake. Isaiah 29, you'll be punished with thunder, earthquake, and a loud noise. The nations fall. And verse 19, the great city Babylon's fall and split into three, drinking the cup of the wrath of their sins. And friends, we're going to see another camera angle of Babylon as we study 17 and 18 in a couple weeks. People are wailing and weeping in chapter 18 because of their loyalty to Babylon. Like they are grieving because Babylon's falling apart. Verse 20 shows more of the undoing of the old creation. Islands fled, mountains crumble, hailstones fall, battle against God's enemies. Just like Joshua 10, the Amorites flee as hailstones fall down and crush them. And what do the people do? Same thing they've been doing in the fourth plague and the fifth plague. They curse God. The followers of Satan have the forked tongue cursing of God, blaspheming the Holy Creator. So the final judgment cycle in Revelation is ended. But what are we supposed to do with this? Let me give you a few points of application. First is this. We live between two cries. We live between two cries. The, the it is finished of the cross where our sins are fully paid for for believers and the it is done of the throne that the plan will be accomplished and justice will be served. And we look to those cries with much hope. We look to the cry from the cross with gratefulness, remembering that is where our redemption comes from. We have no hope unless Jesus did that. And it's only by grace we're saved. We didn't earn that. We don't add to that. That's our redemption. So we look to the cry from the cross, but we look to the cry from the throne with anticipation, looking with hope of our future home going. All the suffering, all the struggles, all the pain in the midst of faithfulness, it's, it's going to be remembered. It's going to come to an end someday that we will be with him and see him as he is. We live between these two cries. Secondly, we live in one of two kingdoms. We really see two opposing kingdoms here, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man, or the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the serpent. Here's the question, which kingdom has your allegiance? One of these kingdoms has your allegiance. Which leads to our third application. We're going to have two responses. The first response is this, believe. Believe. If you are not a follower of Christ, you are to believe in Jesus Christ. Jesus the Savior. Jesus the King. And give Him allegiance. Do not harden your heart, friend. This may be the last time you hear this message. You may have grown up with this, but this may be the last time. Do not harden your heart. And if you walk away and do not respond, think, well, I'll do that when I grow up, or I'll do that at another time, or I'll do this something like that. You just have excuses. You are hardening your heart. You are hardening, and that's a scary spot to be. If you are a follower of Christ, you are equally to believe. Believe in Jesus in all areas of your life. Let Jesus rule and have allegiance in all areas of your life. Not just this, 
and or just that. Not not just your Sundays and not your Mondays and Tuesdays. Not just your your wife, but or fan or spouse, but not your family. Not just your neighborhood, but not your work. If you are two faced, if you live this way, but then you edit it when you're over here, you are not having allegiance to King Jesus. If there's inconsistency in your life, you are not believing in Jesus. Oh, friends, and let's just admit, we all have inconsistency, right? So we must believe. We go from unbelief to belief. Unbelief to belief in how we use our phone. Unbelief to belief in how we use the computer. Unbelief to belief how we work and talk to people at work. Unbelief to belief in how we engage people in neighborhood, how we talk to our spouse, how we talk to our kids, how we talk to our roommates, whatever. Unbelief to belief. There has to be loyalty and consistency. Let us believe that Jesus really is the king in every area of our lives. That's the first response. Second response is be awake. It's fascinating that Jesus has kind of just one comment for his church in the midst of the battle. Here's what you need to know, church, in the midst of the battle. Verse 15, blessed is the one who stays awake. Be awake. These are the ones singing the victory song in chapter 15. These are the ones who cry, yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments from under the altar. These are the ones who must stay awake. Be alert spiritually. Friends, are we alert or are we dull and callous or are we sleepy and weary and are we just walking around like the apocalypse zombies? Just living just to whatever comes our way or are we staying alert? The band's gonna come. And let us pray and sing to the Lord. We're going to sing a song called Even So Come. And it says, Lord, we wait for you. But the waiting is an eager waiting. It's a content waiting, but it's a, it's a staying alert waiting. Lord, we, we beg you, Lord, come quickly. We beg you, Lord, to do as, as you want to do for your kingdom to come and your will to be done. Oh, friends, let us be those who stay awake, who stay alert, who go from unbelief to belief in all areas of our lives.